but I'm here to tell you the dreams are real and if you are dedicated and you live in your heart I never auditioned for Broadway I'm getting ready to do my second Broadway show I lived in Dallas, Texas I live in Oak Cliff, Texas Can I have actors to places? Stand by for curtain call Go. Stand by for house lights. Go. That's a wrap. Good show, everybody. Welcome to Echo Off Stage, Theater Women Speak. Echo Theater Dallas has been amplifying women's voices on stage since 1998. Now we invite you off stage, behind the curtain, for an intimate conversation with theater's most influential and innovative women. I'm your host, Katherine Whiteman, and I am here with Liz Michael. And I'm saying that with love and awe. <laughs> Welcome Listen, to the, the show. It's so mutual. We have a long history together in theater <laughs> and in our lives. And I'm so delighted to be here with you today, Katherine. Well, Liz, I am tickled and I am so excited to share your amazing story with our listeners. So some bullet points for, for Liz Michael. She is an award-winning stage and film actress and vocalist. She's been a member of the Briarly Resident Acting Company at Dallas Theater Center for over 30 years on film. She's appeared alongside Chadwick Boseman and Viola Davis in Get On Up. And she had a recurring role as Mama Karina Williams on Friday Night Lights. Most recently, she portrayed John Hancock in American Repertory Theater's revival of 1776 in Boston, which will move to Broadway from September 16th through January 9th, and then will tour nationally during 2023. And Liz, I've known you so long that I know that's not all. <laughs> There's so much, so much more in, in your incredible career. And, and I just, I want to dig in and, and talk about a, as many of those things as we can get in in the time we have together. So first off, for those of our local listeners who know you but may not know the answer to this question, how did you get started performing? Oh my God, Catherine. I, it's, it's like I came out of the womb, practically. I was a dancer first. I saw Swan Lake when I was three years old in my grandmother's living room in Houston, Texas. And my mother was working on her doctorate at the time. And we ended up moving to Dallas and she taught at Bishop College. She was a, a biology professor there. And I, for those, for, from the age of three until the age of five, Almost daily, I begged her, Mama, I want to be a ballerina. Mama, can I be a ballerina? Mama, look, I can be a ballerina. And she was a, uh, Ann Williams, the founder of Dallas Black Dance Theater, was a colleague of my mother's. She, at five years old, she said, Ann, take her. Take her. <laughs> because I had begged all those years. But I, I was an artistic kid and my mother, oh God, I didn't put tissue by me. <laughs> My mother never stepped on that dream. And so I, I started out formally training in ballet, modern, and jazz. So I've always created 
And my mother always encouraged me, but it all started with dance. I, I love it that you share the story that way, because for all of the years that I have known you, I didn't know that you were a dancer until you <laughs> did your your one woman show in Irving. And I don't know if you remember when when I when I interviewed you after that, I said, Liz, where did all that come from? And you said, Catherine. I started as a dancer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, and, and, I, and I don't know if a lot of people listening will know that that was where it is, but so I'm so glad that you shared that story because man, you really can dance. Well, I don't know about these days, but I used to, <laughs> I could put it down. I could, I won all dance contests, Catherine. And, and this is not for theater, but I didn't realize, I guess in my young mind that I was actually performing, but, during the, my my teen years, and I shouldn't have been there, but my older brother would take me to nightclubs. I would take over the dance floor. <laughs> People stopped and watched. It, it was during the disco era, you know, in the, the yeah. late 70s, early 80s. And I, I was, I, I, it wasn't a dance contest that happened that I didn't win. The Prince Dance Contest, the 1999, I was winning tickets to, to shows, limo rides, just dancing. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, if that doesn't say to you, this is who I am, this is what I will be, you know, then, then I have to ask you, was there anything else? I mean, obviously, you grew up surrounded by art. You grew up surrounded by performers. What was that moment that you said, okay, this is something that I love to do, but it's also going to be my career? I'll tell you, it was the late 80s. I was a, I was doing theater. I, I had done a show at the Black Academy called Stopping at the Savoy, and that was in my evening time. Now, I was a mother, a wife, and I would get off of work. I was a sales rep for International Telecharge, Inc., ITI. And so I worked for ITI during the daytime as a sales rep. And I would go get my kids from the babysitter, get them snacks and, and something to occupy them and go to rehearsal at night and in the evenings. And I invited my boss. Her name was Dee. Oh, I can't remember Dee's last name. Anyway, I invited her to come see Stomping at the Savoy one weekend. And then that Monday morning, she called me into her office with this look of concern on her face. And she said, why are you here? And I said, are you telling me something? I, you know, are, are you firing me? What? She says, no, I came to that show and I saw you on that stage. I want to know why you're here instead of doing that full time. And that kind wow. of planted the seed because, you know, it, 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 from what we were told and raised with, my mother wasn't, didn't subscribe to this, but other members of my family, you have to have a job. You have to have something to fall back on. Anyway, that, that job did end, that they had a layoff. And that fall, I met Akeem Babatunde, who was very instrumental in my life. And I'm, I'm hopeful that your listeners know who this great man is, this artist. That's how we know each other, Catherine. Yeah, it is. And I met him in 1990. He was auditioning for Dream Girls at the old Dallas Repertory Theater, which is gone. And I and I, they offered me a equity contract. This was in 1990. That lets you know how long I've been equity. And I asked him. I said, "What does this mean?" He said, "It means sign it." And only a few African American professional actresses in this community signed that contract. 
and I signed that contract and I still, I, the, the money, when I got my first paycheck, I said, you mean I do not have to browbeat people into changing their zero plus carrier and I can, I can get a insurance and have a pension and take this home every week. Of course, I didn't realize the ins and outs of having to audition to make sure I kept maintaining that, that weekly paycheck. Once that show was over, you had to go to the next one. But that really started me thinking, I can do this professionally. I would do things to supplement between shows because I was a mother. And so I would braid hair, sew clothes. I came up with my own singing telegram service called Valograms. And uh, yeah, so, but after a while, I think that was the beginning of me knowing that I was destined to do do this thing full time Mm -hmm. and not just, you know, when it came along. I I started seeking out opportunities and then opportunities presented themselves as well. Well, when you've got the level of talent that you have. And and I don't think anybody would disagree with me on that. This is not me blowing smoke, Liz. I've seen you on stage. Don't make me cry. <laughs> I'm not. I promise I won't. Because if you cry, I'll cry. This will all go to hell in a handbag. Mm. But when you've got that level of talent, the other magic is determination. And when I'm, I'm, I'm hearing you talk about those early days, you've got to find a babysitter. You've got oh, to find and the bring gig. the babies with you. Exactly. You've got, and we and we both know about that. Yes, we do. Christopher to rehearsals too. So, but but you've got to once you've made the commitment to it, you've got to figure out how to sustain it. And we have watched you do that over many years. I'm going to assume that things became a little bit easier once you joined the acting company at the Dallas Theater Center. Talk about that experience. Well, I'll tell you, I did not join initially. Because when I came to DTC, Ken Bryant had just passed. Akeem Babatunde was a company member there under Adrian Hall and then Ken Bryant. This is early 90s. And Akeem had started this fabulous African-American acting company called Vivid. And it was closed. It was a select group of artists, one of whom I'm talking to right now. It was a wonderful experience. And after I met Akeem, and he started working with me and he saw I, it wasn't anything that came would ask of me because I wanted to. Oh, I wanted to stretch and grow. He told me when he met me. Because I had that 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 drive and the passion for it, but did not necessarily have all of my my tools and my training. He said, you do not want to be dismissed as big mama on the couch. I need you to dig deeper. I don't want it to be surface. See, I'm already tearing up. I don't want it to be surface and and people will dismiss you because they'll think they already know what you're going to say and how are you going to say it because that's what you think. But if you make a connection with it and and dig deeper, it will mean something. And so I started working with him in, in other things and he invited me. I was the only other one beside that core group that was invited in to join Vivid. And my training with Vivid, we were doing things at at DTC in the spaces there. And we did a wonderful piece called Of Guns, Ropes, and Lies, written by Britt Miller. It was in the basement. And another dear mentor, uh, Tyrese Allen, came to see that show. And he said, oh, I love your work. And I was taken aback. I'm, I'm still, to this day, taken aback when people say that. And 
it just it blows my mind because I see this little fat dancer girl. Anyway, he said, I love your work. Have you auditioned for A Midsummer Night's Dream? They're looking for a multicultural cast. And I've been working with Akeem. He was giving us our tools as working professional actors. And he was like, you have to have contrasting monologues. You have to have a classic monologue. You have to have Shakespeare. You know, you, you have to have these things in your arsenal as a prepared actor. And I had shirked on those, <laughs> the one-on-ones with him. Hadn't memorized. Hadn't memorized any of my Shakespearean monologues that we had talked about. Hadn't done any of that work. And Tyrese told me at that time, he said, come to my house. I will work with you. And I went and he gave me the the basic cliff notes of Midsummer and broke things down for me and worked with me on iambic pentameter and, you know, things that I had worked on in college, but I hadn't implemented them you know, as an actor. And so he was just worked with me. And I ended up having an audition for David Petrarca, who they were at the time, I have to go back and say this, at the time after Ken Bryant passed, DTC started looking for a new artistic director. And David Petrarca was on the short list. And so he was directing A Midsummer Night's Dream. And I don't want give the, I'll just give the Reader's Digest version. I auditioned. I went in and and told him I didn't want to do a monologue, but he just let me read from the script. I, 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 this, I kid you not. This is how I went into that audition. (laughs) And he said, he said, oh no, do your monologue. I said, oh, please. I, I just, I'm not comfortable. Would you just please let me read something? And so he let me read. I think I read one of Peas Blossom or one of the fairies. No, I read Hippolyta first. And that's what uh, Tyrese had worked with me on. And so he kind of looked at me and he was like, and you're equity. I was new to equity at the time. This was 91. He was like, you're equity. I said, yes. He said, okay. And before I made it out the door, he said, wait, 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 just a second. Do you sing? I said, yeah, yeah I sing. <laughs> and so I, I, sang for, I sang for him. I'm not going to go into details. Anyway, before I could make it home, I got a call back. And so I ended up in that play, which was life-altering for me. I was on stage with company members, with Randy Moore and Nance Williamson, Kurt Rhodes, uh, Terry Vandervoort, of course, Akeem Babatunde, Michael Severus was our puck, and I played Mustard Seed. Richard Hamburger, at the same time, was up for that same position of artistic director at DTC, and he had directed another piece, and the board went with him. And in 1992, he was announced as the artistic director of Dallas Theater Center. His very first main stage show that he directed was Streetcar Named Desire. I auditioned for it. Richard didn't like me. And Akeem Babatunde and Randy Moore went to him and said, hey. Uh, and, and, and I have to also go back and say, working in Midsummer. Randy Moore, who played Bottom, was also about to direct A Christmas Carol as a company member. At that time, they would rotate which company member directed and, you know, which. Anyway, he told me in those rehearsals, he said, I want you to pay very close attention to Peggy Loft, who was our diction coach on that show. He said, I want you to pay very close attention in those one on one sessions because I'm casting you as the ghost of Christmas present in A Christmas Carol. And it's, my mind is being blown. 
And so yes. I, I, I ended up in a Christmas carol. Richard Hamburger, Hamburger ended up artistic director, and he did not want to hire me for Eunice Hubble in Streetcar. And Akeen and Randy went to bat for me, and they said, no, I tell you what, we are company members. We won't be in this show if you don't hire her. Wow. And Richard was like, well, do you think people will take her seriously? I don't know. And I ended up in that show. Okay. So after that show and that season in 1992, the acting company was disbanded. There was no more acting company at DTC. That's right. House and ever. I ended up working there every season. It, it, it was a Christmas carol every year. In 1995, I did a wonderful show called Avenue X. I did Ain't Misbehaving. I, I did Crowns. There were other shows, Cotton Patch Gospel. So I was working at DTC regularly up until 2007, 2008, I believe, when Kevin Moriarty took over as the artistic director. And at that time, he resurrected the acting company and asked me to come in and audition. And I did. And I, since then, I have been a member of the Briarly Resident Acting Company. I am having all of these flashbacks to that period of time because, of course, I saw you in Midsummer Night's Dream and it was brilliant, a brilliant show in the Arch District Theater. And it was just, you know, you can't even on that sandbox and on that sandbox around Michael Severus's neck and and lingerie. Absolutely. This is not a show that if, if you miss this show, you missed a moment in, in, in Dallas theater mm-hmm. history. But I can remember working on a project with Randy Moore and he said, I'm going to tell you this because you're going to have to make sure you're there to see it. I've got Liz playing the ghost of Christmas. Was it past present, the time? Present, present. present. And he said, and she comes out and she is going to steal the show. And so, of course, I was on I this huge it. throne with Candle Abra and real light at that point, <laughs> yes, they could lit. they let us bring fire into the theater. I'm I'm totally oblivious to it, Catherine. I've got on this synthetic wig, just just big. Didn't even oh think of, didn't even think twice. <laughs> didn't even think twice. I'm on this huge throne with like, candles. And a synthetic wig. Let's not forget the synthetic synthetic wig. Oh, my gosh. Well, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. And and that period of time was so rich. So rich. I agree. And 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 then to to grow out of that and and then finally when when Kevin comes to Dallas as artistic director to be brought into the company, I I can imagine that was a, a real moment of okay. It's still a pinch I'm, me I'm moment. It's still a pinch yeah. me moment that this is my life. The blessings, the the longing of a artistic heart to express themselves in a community that that just rains down support and love and says, this is what you want to do. Here you go. Somebody who was very instrumental in that. And God bless. She, when she left us early this year was Diane Tucker. Diane wrote the it's very first. She wrote the very first lead I ever had. I played Mahalia Jackson. That's how I met Tyrese. She was doing an acting workshop, a monologue workshop with Tyrese. And when Akeem came to town, he worked with Diane. And Diane said, have you met Liz? Have you met Liz? So he had heard about me before we ever met. Yeah. 
Yeah. But yeah, diet, yeah, that's it's still it's it's still hard. So I want to talk about I don't know if you would consider this your your first big break outside the community or not, but you were a part of the original cast of Lysistrata Jones in 2011. Tell us a little bit about that show, and I'll have some other questions for you as well. Well, you know, it started right here in DFW, baby. It started <laughs> right here at DTC. The whole thing began in 2009. We had just opened the Wiley Theater downtown. Maybe it was a little bit before that opening. Kevin was good friends with Dan Connectus, who was the director of that show. And Dan is good friends with Douglas Carter Bean. And they were discussing this play that they had in mind, this musical about basketball. And Kevin, sight unseen, said when they said, oh, and there's this this muse that comes through, this all-knowing. And Kevin said, stop. I know who that who that role is. You've got to meet her. And they flew me up to New York to do a reading. And the next thing I knew, it was in the season. And they were here. Everybody was from New York. And these children, some of them have gone on to do miraculous things and are quite known beyond Broadway. I, I, anyway, it started right here in DFW. And when in 2010, your viewers may remember, I had a horrific house fire that took everything away. I was getting ready for that show. We were getting ready for tech rehearsals, our first day of tech rehearsals when I lost everything. And... It was just like my feet were jacked from up under me. But the cast, the crew, our theater community, the theater community countrywide, it, it was just miraculous how the love and the covering that they gave my daughter and myself. But after that, you know, you pick up the pieces and you keep going. Well, in 2011, I'm minding my own business doing Dividing the Estate with a keen as one of my, my cast members, castmates, and I get this call from Dan Connectus. Hey, Liz, we're wanting to take the show off Broadway. We were trying to offer the role to Whoopi Goldberg, who is a good friend of Douglas's, but she doesn't know if she'll have the time to do it. And we were thinking maybe we'd bring you in as her understudy, but she's turned it down. Can you think you might be able to come in and do the role? It doesn't pay a lot. And uh, we'll, we'll, you know, find somewhere for you to stay, you know, all these things. I molded back and forth, molded back and forth, talked to some people. They were like, well, if they can't pay, you don't go. And then other people, are you kidding me? That's in New York. What's wrong with you? God, <laughs> God answered the, the question. I prayed on it. And at the time, I, you know, we all go through different tax things and financial things. And I had filed some back taxes and they started rolling in. Ouch. Not one tax refund, not two tax refunds, but three. God was saying, I got you, sister. You go. You can pay your rent here in Dallas because, honestly, Off-Broadway paid me less than unemployment pays. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but it fell just exactly and everything, right. And, and a wonderful friend of mine, Cynthia Scott, a jazz singer, allowed me to sleep on her couch. And that's how that beginning happened. And I just threw caution to the wind. It was one of the hardest times in my life, just walking because we're not used to that here in Dallas. We get in our cars and drive everywhere. I and was having air to conditioning. Walk. I was trying to walk uphill or it's heat because this was in April that we started this. So it was still chill in the air, walking uphill, walking over three blocks, 
taking the train, switching trains, and then getting to the West 4th Street Station and walking another seven blocks, then being at rehearsal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Liz, you painted the a, picture. I had Seriously. a third day of work before I even got to rehearsal. And then reversing that that evening, I was worn out my body. My spirit, I was worn out. And I was like, maybe I'm not cut out for this. But once the show opened, it got easier. And people started coming in droves. And the reviewers came. And I didn't know those people. So I, I wasn't trying to play up to anybody. I was just doing my gig. And people were like, they love you. And I was like, who? Ben, ben Brantley. I, who? They were like, the New York theater critic. It's like, Oh, okay. So you said he likes me? <laughs> the next thing I knew, and I, I honestly got lightheaded, Catherine, I was leaving to come back home to Dallas to do The Wiz. And they announced our closing day that we were going to Broadway. And I kid you not, I got lightheaded. It, I was like, I, I just kind of swooned like, what? Now, this is the point for all of that. Young people, I was sitting here in Dallas, Texas. I had done my gig. I was doing another gig. I lost my home while I was doing that that gig. I did my gig. Yeah, yeah. I was doing other gigs. I was I was singing the Tucker's Diane Tucker's Club. I was doing other things, and I got the call. I never ran up and got in auditions all over Broadway. I never ran up and got in line and beat the. And there's nothing wrong with that. As an older woman, I, those moves, getting up in the morning, walking uphill, walking over three blocks, changing the track. But I That's did a it. lot. Yeah. yeah. And it, I'm not a young person. And I wasn't a slim person, you know? Yeah. But I'm here to tell you that dreams are real. And if you are dedicated and you live in your heart, I never auditioned for Broadway. I'm getting ready to do my second Broadway show. I lived in Dallas, Texas. I live in Oak Cliff, Texas. <laughs> yeah. It Liz, that is so huge. You know, the the everything that is coming from your heart in talking about that experience of being able to accomplish something that people work so hard to accomplish despite the things that you were going through. But it's a mouthful, you know, to 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 be able to accomplish the things that you've accomplished from Dallas, Texas, in in, in the ways that you have. So I know that we're going to we're going to talk a little bit about your project that you are currently in the midst of in the second half. But before we, we move to that, I want to ask you about the vagina monologues. <laughs> the experience of working with, and you've worked with V, and I think other folks will, will remember her as Eve Ensler, but you've, you've worked with her many times. But let's talk about the vagina monologues. What are your, your memories from that show? Okay, I'm going to cry through this whole darn interview. <laughs> I'm sorry, okay. Liz. Okay, it all started in 2008. I was, this was during Friday Night Lights when I was going back and forth to Austin and some women in a group in Austin reached out to me and said, listen, everybody here loves you as Mama Smash. 
we are doing a benefit for women in the military who have been sexually abused. It's called Military B-Day. Would you just come down and do a monologue? There are women from all over the community, all walks of life, but we would love to have your voice as a part of the evening. I drove down on my own dime, not knowing it was during South by Southwest, I might add. And But I, put, I was able to put myself up, but it, everything worked out. And they gave me a monologue called The Little Coochie Snorcher That Could. Fast forward to the evening. It was in this area in, in, in Austin called the Enchanted Forest. And when I tell you, it was in the middle of the city, but it was this wooded area and people lived there. There were artists. There were Glenn Close, Selma Hayek, Jane Fonda. I, she went on and on. I was like, oh, wow, that's going to be something. I do my monologue. I, the evening finishes and a little woman rushes up to me. It was her assistant. She said, listen, Eve wants to meet you. I was like, me? She comes up. She says, you, you are coming to the 10th anniversary in New Orleans. I said, me? I, and me? She said, yes, you. I said, well, I, I'm also doing a benefit that weekend for breast cancer in, in L.A. She said, I don't care. You come. So I called my friend who was my publicist at the time, who is now the big muckety muck over Taka, Terry Loftus. I called him. I said, Terry, I said, Eve Ensler said, I'm coming to the 10th anniversary. And he gave an expletive. He said, if she said it, you going. (laughs) Yeah. And so he accompanied me both to L.A. to do the benefit at the Mint for breast cancer awareness. And then we took the red eye to New Orleans. Wow. And I get there. There are all these stars. There's Doris Roberts. Oh, the late, great Doris Roberts. There's Kerry Washington, Rosario Dawson, Jane Fonda, Jennifer Hudson, Jennifer Beale, of the whole cast from The L Word, Christine Lottie, Shirley Knight, Khan, Faith Hill. I, I, wow. I, I can't tell you. All, I mean, and then there are other women of the same caliber from other parts of the world. There's a a French actor. There's one from Mexico. These are all heavyweights. And then there are activists from all across the world, all female activists. We get there. She ends up giving me a monologue called The Angry Vagina. And so I get there and everybody else had kind of rehearsed over there as I go and rehearse it. Anyway, long story short, I come back from rehearsal and I get a call from the assistant again, Liz, we need Terry's number. We need your guest number. If you have guests coming tonight, there's been a situation. She was really hyped. And I was like, what is it? Miss Winfrey won't be joining us. And Eve wants you to do her monologue. Once again, me, (laughs) me, I just gave you this list, Catherine, of the women that were there. Exactly. I mean, Academy Award winning actors, people, uh, Emmy Award winning actors. I said, me, she wants me to do it. She said, yes, just follow the PA, get the monologue. I said, well, what about the angry vagina that I just rehearsed? You know, but what? She said, I'll, I'll have an answer. I'll call Terry and then fill him in. Before I could get that monologue and get to my room, Terry was meeting me. He said, you're doing both. Wow. You're doing both. And I, I, all I can say about that evening, it was a surreal moment in my life 
I did the angry vagina. And because Friday Night Lights was playing at the time and I took my shoes off and stood barefoot in the center of that stage and did that monologue and people were screaming (laughs) because they knew that monologue. They knew me as Mama Smash. Then I introduced the next piece because it didn't even have an introduction because it was for Oprah and Eve was going to do the introduction. V was going to do the introduction. So I introduced it off stage, just a voiceover. And then I walked up on stage and I started it. And I told you, New Orleans holds a special place in my heart. The piece was called Hey Miss Pat. And it was written for a woman named Pat Henry, who was from New Orleans. And it talked about her trials and tribulations in feeding her community during the pandemic. I mean, during the the hurricane and during that devastation to that entire community. So it started out, hey, baby, hey, Miss Pat, what you cooking? Hey, baby, come on over to my house. I got something for you. You know, that baby, his mama died from all that female aldehyde in those trailers. And, And it was just this beautiful homage to the warriors and women that had survived all of those atrocities in the Superdome, in the communities, people just struggling to make a way. And at the very end of it, there was this litany that connected with me on a way And she said, come on to my house, baby, because I'm cooking. I'm cooking up a government that will care. I'm cooking up a levy that will hold. Come on to my house because I'm cooking. And by the time I finished, of course, I'm standing in the middle of the stage crying and screaming because I'm like, come on to my house. Come on, because I'm cooking for you. I'm cooking up resistance and rage. And and people jumped up. It was like 15,000 people that they screamed and hollered. And so I could barely catch my breath. V came up on the stage. She had told me, she said, once you finish, don't leave. I'm, I'm going to go. The director, okay. the, the woman who wrote it told me not to leave. She told me to come. I stayed on the stage. Catherine, I'm standing on that stage with tears streaming down my face. And she says, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Pat Henry. And the woman the poem was written about came up on the stage. And we all three in the middle of that stage hugged. And my mic was on. I said, oh, God bless you. God bless you. Oh, Lord. And we had church right there in the middle of the stage. It affected everyone. Yeah. In a nutshell, that was the 10th anniversary of the Vagina Monologues. Wow. And, and, And B, at that point, she was like, you have saved our show. Well, I didn't know until years later. And I had done other things with her since then. She had called on me to fill in, to do some other things. And she told me years later, I think in 2014, she said, Liz, I didn't have anywhere for you to be on that show when I invited you. I didn't know where I was going to put you. I had no idea. And people were asking me, why did you invite her? You don't have anywhere for her to, you don't have a monologue for her. She said, I'll give her a monologue. I'll find something. She said, and with that day, when Oprah Winfrey backed out, I knew why I had invited you to that show. Wow. She's been one of my, my dearest friends. I, I, I couldn't talk to her for the longest. I would get so choked up and welled up every time I was in her presence because I know what a force of nature she is and the fact that she makes a difference in people's lives that don't even know she's alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I would be willing to bet that she would say the same thing about you. 
Oh, when you when you think about it, Liz, <laughs> that was an intimidating group of women uh-huh. to find yourself in. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm looking around. I'm like me, you, you me. But truthfully, since I have known you, I mean, there's a lot of words that describe who you are as a performer. But you have the biggest heart. You have so much courage and you are so bold, (laughs) you know? I wish I'd been there that night to see you do Miss Pat Henry. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Catherine, it's still in my mind. It was just like this. I don't have words to describe. Yeah. Yeah. The words... I still get so overcome and it's it's like an out of body experience. And then the people that I met afterwards, Val Kilmer, Eve's son, Dylan McDermott. I mean, these people lighted up trying to meet me and I'm like, what? Carrie Washington, I, I, her assistant reached out to me after the whole thing was like, Carrie wants to keep in contact with you. I, it, it was just crazy. Just crazy. Yeah, yeah. But that, you know, those are those are the wonderful moments that you that you truly cannot recreate. Let me transition out of this if I can get my emotions under control. I'm Liz. sorry, Kat. <laughs> <laughs> we knew this would happen. We knew this would happen. I want to ask you about the work that you do off stage. You you've mentioned, you know, Mama Smash. In addition to your work on stage, you're a very accomplished film and television actress. So going back to, as we did with your with your beginning in, in theater, what piece of advice do you wish someone had given you before you set foot on the first film or TV set? Well, I, I you know what? They, they did give me the advice. Our dear friend, the late, great Phyllis Cicero. And just because she was accomplished on and off stage. And I remember asking her, I said, Phyllis, what do I need to do to book a role? I I, 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 I show up. She's like, you can't show up as you, Liz, because they can't see past you to the character. You have to show up and be the character. So you have to be your own wardrobe, your own makeup artist. If they're asking for a granny, you can't show up looking like Liz. And it had happened to me. I ended up getting a call back. I auditioned and got a call back for Forrest Gump. But I showed up as Liz. And the part that I got the call back for was the nurse sitting on the bench that most of the story that yes. said those look like some comfortable shoes, but I had I had and I had a call back for Bubba's mama. And I showed up looking like this, and they were like, Well, no. I was like, look, we can pull these nails off, I can take these braids out. <laughs> but they couldn't see that. Yeah. Yeah. So it it just goes back to I I can't say what I wish somebody had told me. It goes back to all the things that Akeen and Tyrese, those things that they instilled in me. Be pleasant to work with. Show up on time. Be prepared. Know people's names. All of those things are just a part of who I am now. And if I don't know your name, you a baby. Hey, baby. (laughs) Oh, sweetheart. How you been? I will remember details about them. I won't remember their names sometimes, but they will become baby. But I show up open and ready Yeah. when I walk. And I'll be nervous in the service. Oh, I'll be so nervous. But 
there's something about rising to the occasion and owning the space that, that we've been given and the opportunity that we've been given. And if I don't step up, lest I step up and represent all of these people in DFW, Oak Cliff, Redbird, yeah. my mama, my grandbabies, my daughters. Yeah. Dr. Versia would not appreciate that. No, no. She would, she would, <laughs> she would not appreciate that. No, no. So yeah, I, I, I have to echo again, the, the vagina monologues moment. You stepped into that space and you owned it and it created an experience yes. that people who were there will never forget. And no, they and if won't. You, and if you go into every opportunity to create that kind of moment every time you do it, people don't forget you. Yeah. You know, they don't forget you. And I, so, I, I'm going to add a little thing onto the end of that. Christine yeah. Lottie. So we were sitting around. It was in the round at, at the arena there in New Orleans. And I'm telling you, 10, 15,000 people in the thing. And so all of the actors and activists were sitting around the stage. And when it was your turn, you took the stage. So Doris Roberts was at the end of the row. Everybody loves Raymond. The mob, we all love oh, Doris Roberts. Yeah. Then there was an activist. I can't remember which country she was from next to her. Then it was me. Then another activist. Then it was Christine Lottie. Well, after I finished Hey Miss Pat, the activists all went on stage to, for a presentation. And Doris Roberts leaned into me. And Christine Lottie leaned into me. And Doris Roberts, tears running down her face. She said, Liz. She said, oh, my God, Oprah Winfrey couldn't have done what you just did. I'll never forget you as long as I live. And so I'm crying over here. And Christine Lottie grabs me the other way. She said, when did you know you were doing that monologue? I said, when we got here for our walkthrough, she said, you little help. You look, she called me something else. She said, why you? <laughs> and we all three just, we hugging and crying and rocking right there. Yeah. It, so, yeah. Yeah. Big, big, big moment. Colossal, colossal moment. I, I, I just love that. I want to ask you about playing Mama Smash. What can you, for, for folks who may not have watched Friday Night Lights, which shame I, on you. I, shame. shame, I know, right? Shame. Yeah, it's on Netflix. You better watch. Better watch it. So so talk a little bit about the, the show and tell us what your biggest challenges and rewards of that role were. When I drove to Austin to audition for that, I didn't think, I thought the role was, you know, they're going to introduce his family and that's it. You know, we'll see him in the background at the football games. Da, 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 da. And uh, I had wrote, written down, I drove down with another actor friend of mine and she stayed in the room much longer than I did. And I said, well, she got it, you know. And I get the call from my agent. They were saying, well, it's between you and another actress. And she's from L.A. And the thing of it is, you look like one of the kids and she looks like one of the kids. But little did I know I look like the son. <laughs> that <laughs> he both had I'm his sure. little nose. And, you know. <laughs> so when I got it, again, I'm in this mind frame of, you know, it's going to be almost cameo-ish. You know, they show us at church. They show us at, you know, the football game. Blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm not knowing they're going to come to the house and get to know the family too. Yeah. And when I met Gaius, who I, I who was Smash, when you want to talk about a remarkable person, an individual, and 
a walking heart and talented and grounded and spiritual. And I, I don't have enough adjectives to tell you all the great things about that young man. So I, first of all, that's to answer your question. I didn't expect anything out of it, big out of it. Didn't expect it was going to blow up on TV. Didn't expect to go in and have a connection with the family that I that I portrayed. So I'm still in touch with my baby girl, Nico, who played who was my baby girl, Nico Mann, and with Gaius. We, we chat every now and again. But beyond that, just Connie and 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 everybody involved in that show. It was a labor of love. So there were no egos and crazy times. And people would see you and be glad to see you. Brad Leland, who is from here in DFW. Uh, Libby, I, I can't think, you know, all the DFW actors. And we were pulling for each other. And then it was this little engine that could, that NBC didn't quite know where to put us. The first we were on Tuesday, it was called Friday Night Lights. And then we came on after... We would try to come on against the voice, not the voice, was the American Idol. And they were like, no, that's not quite right. And then then they finally put us on Friday. It was just, the, it was crazy. But the train started and people got on and they fell in love with the characters. Yeah. And when I got that script, a home, it wasn't homecoming. It was, was it homecoming? It was where we went back to our old town. And these things dredged up from our history as a yeah. family. And it really dug into the Williams family. And and Smash and I had it out. And then we had to come to Jesus afterwards. And I said, when I read that script, the first time they said it, I just bawled my eyes out. I was like, this is for my family. It's not just me in the stands. And then the, the storyline, the steroids. Spoiler alert if you haven't watched it. <laughs> You know, and I charge in to, to Kyle Chandler to the, the coach's office and, and tear him a new one. And I, <laughs> it, it, it was it was another one of those monumental times in life where God says, here, baby. Here. Here's a challenge that I think you're up to. Yeah. And and, yeah. and you just drive three, 300, uh, you know, drive three hours down the road and here's a national TV show for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, and a, and a wonderful show that, that really, I mean, uh, for, for the folks who, who do know the show and, and watched it, it has created a huge fan base, you know, and, and people say, oh, you haven't seen this. You got to watch it. It's really Again. good, you know. Again. The, like I was talking about with Lisa Strata Jones, the the young people have gone on to do monumental things. Jesse Plemons, if I'm not mistaken, was just nominated for an Oscar, hmm. and he's married to Kirsten Dunst. That's right. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> uh -huh. You know, yeah. uh, these young people have gone on to do remarkable things. I was watching Queens on ABC with Brandy and Eve and, and uh, Natari Naughton. And there's Gaius playing one of the leads on, yeah. uh, you know. Yeah. That, and that has to feel good to watch, yeah. to watch that happening. Oh, of course I texted around. him and was like, I'm so proud of you. I see you. I'm <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I want to ask you because there are folks amongst our listeners who will, will know about your theater, but know you more 
for the music that you've done around this town. I can say Balcony Club and people go, oh yeah, Liz's thing, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about, about you could, if you wanted to, only do musicals because you really do have that voice, but you have not limited yourself in terms of the, the challenges that you take on as a career. Why is the singing part so important to you? Music is, and I may sound cliche, is the key of life. There's hardly any time in my life that music hasn't been present. And I guess that was why I wanted to be a dancer, because I wanted the music to speak through me. I tried to play an instrument very young in, in, in elementary school. You know, I, all kids try to play an instrument. Mine was the flute. I was horrible. I practiced, I practiced, I practiced, I practiced. And it just never flowed out of me like other artistic things I was able to express myself. It was just challenging. And that's when I started singing. I, I always felt my mother, anybody that, well, people may not know, my mother not only was an educator and a, a service organizer and, and would give to her community, my mother also, when she was younger, she trained vocally and she was a trained coloratur, which is the highest voice in in the vocal ranges and my mother would would put on recitals this is before i was born she would have whole recitals i mean and dressed to the nines and and so she always had an appreciation for the arts that's why when this artistic kid came out she didn't squelch my dreams and i always thought i had to sound like her and I didn't want to sing opera, I, 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 but music spoke to me. I mean, I, it was nothing wrong. I could kick myself today that I didn't train opera because the control and all of that. I mean, I was in awe of them. I didn't, I guess I didn't think I had the chops to do it mm. either. But I, I, I stepped back off of that a, as a vocalist. I was like, I, and I found my voice. I think I was in the eighth grade. That's crazy. I didn't want to sound like my mama, but I was enamored with Barbara Streisand. <laughs> so you were thinking soprano at the very least, if not quite. Well, and I was at the time. I was at the time. Mm -hmm. I was many years of of doing the wrong things and and uh, and abusing my instrument has has lowered my instrument considerably. But the love of music is still very present. But I sang my first solo in the eighth grade. It was the way we were. It was our eighth grade program, and and of course I danced. I sang. I danced. I I, I did all the things. All the things. <laughs> And I think that was when I began to find my voice as a vocalist. But jazz started really just grabbing at me. And so my dear friend who played the first notes I ever sang to, he's deceased now. You may remember Dewan Robinson. We started doing things with Black Academy. Mm -hmm. And they, at Curtis at the time, allowed us as young artists. And we didn't know we were putting on a cabaret. But we were compelled to do this thing. And he was like, well, go ahead and do whatever it is. And we would create these vignettes with music connecting the storylines. And, and he would just let us go and express ourselves. We were 17, 18, you know. And we would get there. And I find I remember my first one, The Shadow of Your Smile. The shadow of your smile oh, yeah. when you have gone will color all my dreams. Anyway. It sounded great a lot song. better back then. Sounded a lot it's, better back then. It sounded but, great now. But the, 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 those kind of, oh, and mine that I loved was Moon River. 
And so these songs kind of spoke to me. I don't know why I was speaking to my young mind, but that was what planted those seeds of singing and storytelling. And the two kind of just melded for me as this young artist. I was given the permission to express myself and I did. And fast forward to the early 2000s, our dear friend Denise Lee was singing at a piano bar called Bill's Hideaway. And she had to take off one day. And I had gone over and visited and set in. And she had to take off. She was going out of town to do a gig or whatever. She was like, Liz, will you take my gig? And I was like, I don't know. She was like, look, pick 20 songs that you like and just go and work with Buddy Shanahan, the late, great Buddy Shanahan. She said, go Mm. find the keys with Buddy and write your song list out and you can do this. And so I'm in the middle of the gig and I started drinking too much Crown, which was, you know, I was (laughs) relaxing myself. Having a good time. Oh, and the banter started coming and I got a little raunchy and I'm singing the songs. And finally, Buddy looked up. He said, do you want your own night here? You can, can you, can you, you, you can have your own night if you want. I was like, and I'm filling in for Denise and he's not offering me her night. He's offering yeah. me my own. I was like, well, of course I'll take the night. And it became this love affair with music and the, the, the camaraderie with the audience. And it was such a tiny ambient and what am I, the word I'm looking for, you know what I'm talking about. Intimate, Trump. intimate yes. space. Yes. So the, it, it was, I, I didn't feel pressured to, put on or do anything else. I was big enough for the darn space because I filled up the stage. <laughs> but I was allowed to express myself in, in any kind of song that I wanted to. And people would request songs that touched me. And, and it just became a love affair with music all over again because I had stopped doing music because of Phyllis. She had said, Liz, you know what that music thing is. You've done that. Because I had sung in clubs when I was younger. She mm-hmm. said, you know what the music thing is, hone in on your on your acting and your craft and, and get that underway. And so after I had done that and made a name for myself and had been doing theater, I went back into music and fell in love with it all over again. Yeah. Then well, I started I, hosting an open mic and the rest and, is history. And that was that. Yeah. And, and those experiences in Dallas are so important because we've got such an incredible group of musicians in this town. Here, here. And and they need places to be able to showcase what they do as well. So, you know, you 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 and Denise both have been instrumental in making sure that that continues to happen in this town. And it's just, it's so great to have that. All right, Miss Liz, we are going to take a brief intermission, but don't All go right. anywhere because when we come back for act two, we'll be taking a question from our listeners. And oh, discuss- oh yeah, here comes one, Liz. <laughs> And we'll be discussing Liz's work on the revival of 1776. Hey, you. Yes, you. Listening to this podcast right now. Have you subscribed to Echo Offstage yet? You won't want to miss next week's episode when I speak with Lynn Nottage, two-time Pulitzer award-winning playwright of Ruined and Sweat. I think that there's something about being in a space collectively and going through a journey. And in that moment feeling each other in the space, feeling all of the ways in which our neurons are crackling and that crackling is causing some sort of reaction that changes our DNA. And I think that that's the way in which theater can be healing. But all of these fascinating conversations are only made possible by support from our dedicated donors. 
Echo Off Stage is a production of Echo Theatre Dallas, the Southwest premier theatrical organization dedicated to producing works by women plus playwrights. This season of Echo Off Stage is made possible by the Ray Charitable Trust, the City of Dallas Office of Arts and Culture, the Echo 100, and our anonymous donor who has generously sponsored our fifth season. We would love to add your name to that list, unless of course you wish to remain anonymous. If you want to support Echo Offstage, you too can sponsor an episode of the podcast or even an entire season. And I will thank you by name on the show, or you can remain anonymous. If you cannot donate to the podcast, you can still support our work by reviewing the podcast on your preferred listening platform, which helps new listeners find the show. Or you can share this episode on your social media or tell a friend about Echo Offstage. Word of mouth is still our best advertiser. And make sure to join Echo's email list and follow Echo Theatre Dallas on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for a chance to submit your own questions for our guests and for updates on Echo's other upcoming projects. This fall, Echo Theatre is producing the winner of our Big Shout Out International Play Festival, selected out of over 500 submissions. Mark your calendar for the world premiere of Founders Keepers by Aurora Belke directed by Caroline Hamilton at the Bathhouse Cultural Center in Dallas, Texas on September 16, 2022. Set in the near future, with democracy crumbling in Washington, D.C. in flames, Founders Keepers follows a group of fifth-grade girls who are tasked by the government to rewrite the U.S. Constitution. Friendship, power, and zit cream collide in this fresh, vulnerable, hilarious comedy about what it means to grow up in a broken democracy. Running Thursday through Saturday at the Bathhouse Cultural Center from September 16th through October 8th, 2022. For tickets and other information, visit echotheater.org. Tickets on sale starting Friday, August 26th. In the meantime, be sure to support other productions in the DFW area. This week's spotlight shines on Dallas Theater Center. Liz Michael recently celebrated her 30-year anniversary as a Briarly Resident Acting Company member at Dallas Theater Center. The Tony Award-winning theater is excited to be kicking off their new season with Clue, opening September 8th at the D. and Charles Wiley Theater. You can get tickets to see the play at dallastheatercenter.org. And now back to this week's interview. Welcome back to Act Two of Echo Offstage. I'm talking with the incomparable Liz Michael. I have an audience question for you. Caroline asks, if you could change one hmm. thing about the Dallas theater community, what would it be? One thing. Oh, my goodness. The support is there. I think that theater is accessible to all and that there should be more of a community outreach to folks that don't think theater is available to all and make it accessible to everyone. That those, I mean, lives have been changed because of, of theater. One thing that I'm proud of that we do at Dallas Theater Center is Project Discovery, where we bring young people into the theater and integrate them with paying patrons and audiences in the nighttime, not just the student performance. So they're integrated with paying patrons. And so they learn theater etiquette. They learn how a show goes. They're, they're in it. I think that's a great insight, Liz. Thank you so much for sharing that. 
If you would like to have a question featured on our next episode on Echo Offstage, be sure to follow Echo Theater Dallas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Echo Theater Dallas and watch for our stories. So Liz, I want to dig in on this. We yes. talked about 1776 in Act One, but I want to find out a little bit more about how that project came about. How did you get involved with it? Well, 1776. Oh, I'll have to go back and tell how it all started. Again, my relationship with B made all of this possible. I was doing a show here in Dallas, once again, minding my own business, doing theater here. I was doing a wonderful show called The Trials of Sam Houston by Aaron Loeb, starring the late, great Charlie Robinson. It was uh, about a Texas hero, which was not Sam Houston, even though the story was about him, it was told from the viewpoint of Jeff Hamilton, who was enslaved by Sam Houston, who lived in Temple, Texas. His family, his descendants even came to see the show. But I was doing that show when I got the initial email from V about doing Fruit Trilogy. I was doing that show here in Dallas, and I got an email from V asking me about a project that she was getting ready to do in New York called Fruit Trilogy. It's a two-hander with just me and another actor or just two actors. And the dates conflicted. I was not going to be through with Trials of Sam Houston before they started rehearsals. So I told her, I'm sorry, I have a conflict. I won't be able to do it. And then she called me. She was like, look, we've been auditioning actors left and right. Nobody can do this but you. I have faith in you. I know you. The producing company doesn't know you. The director doesn't know you. I wrote this piece for him. He's a director from England. And I, I wrote this piece for a theater festival there. And this is the, the New York premiere of it. And you've got to do it. And just put yourself on tape. I know they're going to fall in love with you. So one of my company members, Ace Anderson, taped me between rehearsals. We were in tech rehearsal, I think, or or doing between a matinee and evening. And I taped the monologue, didn't read the stage directions, just did the monologue. And it was a fun, lovely monologue. And it was about a woman who was embracing herself. She had been through a lot of things and the society had heaped all of these ideas in her head that she had to look a certain way and act a certain way. And and she was getting rid of all of those layers of unnecessary stuff that we heap on ourselves mm -hmm. and or, or that's been heaped on us through the media, blah, 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 blah. So I did the monologue. And then I went back and read the, through the script and I saw that I had to disrobe. Okay. I mean, fully disrobe. Like on stage with people's eyes on, on you. On stage mm -hmm. as a part of the monologue. Ooh. As a part of the monologue. Just buck naked. Okie dokie. And I was like, oh, Lord, no. I, uh, oh, Lord. Yeah. So when it, when days came and I, I had put that, that monologue on tape for them and I didn't hear back, I was like, okay, this is my out. And I called V. I said, oh, honey, I, I know the director doesn't know me and, and you all need to move forward. That the, My conflict is, is, is going to be problematic for you in, the, in getting this piece together in the time that you have. So I, I, if you have to hire somebody else, I totally understand. Thank you for considering me. I'm so grateful. And she called me right back in tears saying, no, Liz, we're just trying to work it out. People love you. We want you. We need you. You've got to come. Or will you please? I mean, she was in tears. She was like, I don't want you to feel bad. Oh, please. I, I just need you to come in. And in your head, you're thinking, 
but I'll be naked. I got to get naked. <laughs> I got to get naked. So she finally asked me, she said, how do you feel about the nudity? And so I, I said, well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm not concerned, but, you know, if it's a part of the piece and it moves me, it's 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 I don't think it's going to just be something that's that's going to be out of the box. I, I should be able to do it. And so. I went on to New York, started rehearsals and the director, when we sat down and started reading through it as a cold read, just the first day working with him one on one. There was a point in the the monologue, and it was a thirty minute monologue. And and the, I, I'll have to go back and tell the 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 whole premise of the show is a, a three movement piece. It was an eighty minute piece. It was in three movements. The other actor, Kiersey Clemens, who is a wonderful Hollywood actor, be doing huge things. I think she's getting ready to be in one of the Marvel shows, but she's huge in Hollywood. Kiersey Clemens was the other actor, and at the beginning, we were these disembodied heads that couldn't see each other. And that piece was written because of the Taliban handbook on how they treated women or how they treat women. Pretty much on display, you're at their mercy as far as, you know, who they want, but they go for the children first, the 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 lighter skinned, the, you know, the slimmer, you know, if you're anything else and you are sacrificed, you are killed, you are a a slave, a sex slave basically. And this it was just these disembodied heads. The next movement was called, and that was pomegranate. The next movement was called avocado, and it was in a container. And so the girl was kind of walled in, and it was lit, lit really dimly. And as the lights came up, you could see that she was soiled from head to foot, bruised up. She was being in that she was running away in that container from being sex trafficked. And 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 she didn't know where she was going. She was saying she was it was asylum. So we didn't know if she was going to an asylum or seeking asylum because she had been through all of these things as a young girl. And that was a I think her monologue was like a 20 or 30 minute monologue. Then my movement, Coconut, I was out of the box and I was performing this ritual with candles and and ambient light. And it took place in my bathroom a place of, of sanctuary for me. And I started rubbing coconut oil on my foot. And as I rubbed it, I channeled these images of going back to my childhood. And what V didn't know that she included in this script was that I was a dancer. And it went back to these little girls laughing in the corner and the blue sequin ballet uniform and them snickering, you too big to be a dancer, you too fat. She had no idea. And so I, that connected with me immediately. And then at the end, I started getting these images of this goddess of fire because I was seeing women being tortured and, and all of these horrible things. You know, women just being women, and, but being tortured for having babies, for, for bleeding monthly, for you know, just women being tortured for being women. And out of that, this, this fire goddess comes to me. And it's so overwhelmingly hot, but she's burning off all of these horrible images and all of these things that we put on ourselves. And as a result, I start stripping my clothes off. And I stood there, sans clothes. I had on my panties because they would try to get me to take them off. And I was like, look, the audience has seen enough if they see me without my bra. 
<laughs> they don't need to see. No, I think we've made the point. Yeah, and that's <laughs> enough. Thank you very much. The end. <laughs> and so out of that, out of that wonderful show, and, and, and it was liberating. I, I thought once it came to it, it was actually, I mean, very liberating. And part of the monologue that I loved was after I disrobed and I could hear women in the audience gasp and, and do these, oh God, oh Jesus Christ, good Lord. I, I got to come right back at them with this in the monologue. I said, don't do that. Mm-mm. Don't start putting it all, don't get all in your head now and start that. I need you to just be here as a witness to my liberation. That's all. I don't need you to put anything on it. And that was the beautiful part of that. And so Diane Paulus, who is one of the co-directors, the other one is Jeffrey Page for 1776. Diane Paulus came to see Fruit Trilogy. And she and V are very good friends. And she said, who is that? And V said, that's Liz. She's been to Arkansas, uh, to American Repertory Theater before. She's been to ART. She was like, no, but she's got to come back. Who? I, 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 we've got to work with her. That I, 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 I want to dig deeper. There's something else that needs to be done. Well, that fall, that because they're good friends, they were in conversations. And Diane mentioned that she was directing 1776 and going to do a rethinking of the casting. So it'd be all female, non-binary, trans casting. She said, well, have you talked to Liz? She contacted me and said, hey, would you put yourself on tape? I'm I'm doing this show. And the next thing I knew, they, she invited me to be a part of the workshop that happened in 2019. I flew up, was there for a whole week, did the workshop. And then about a month later, she said, hey, we're offering you the role of John Hancock. Would you come and play with us? It's going to Broadway and a 16-city tour. Wow. That's absolutely <laughs> incredible. And the way that it comes about... <laughs> <laughs> just, doing the work, doing just the work. doing the work. Yeah, absolutely. And taking a cha- being challenged and rising to the occasion. You talked about that at the first yeah. part. And this was another instance of that. Me stretching myself as an actor. I would never bear my soul and bear my body here in Dallas, Texas. But it was one of the bravest things I think I've ever done on stage. And if that piece came to Dallas, get ready to see me, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think it's fabulous. And again, it goes back to one of the things that I said to you in our earlier conversation is there is a boldness about you that you don't mind saying yes to a challenge and you don't let it intimidate you. And trust me, every other, let's say, woman of a certain age is going to have a moment if they're asked to take their clothes off. You know, they are. When you're over 50... Come on now. Okay, let's just go there. And I'm well over 200 pounds. Come on now. But one thing about it, and this is what what freaked me out. So after we did the show for previews and were, you know, getting notes and stuff, the director came back to V's house where I was staying at the time at her loft in New York. Absolutely gorgeous loft. And, And the director said to me, now he commissioned her to write the piece. They directed it and did it in London. He so he said, "Well, I didn't understand the piece until I saw you do it." Oh my gosh! And then B, without any hesitation, she said, "I didn't understand it, and I wrote it until I saw her do it." <laughs> so yeah, so that's that's the that's the beautiful thing about the collaboration between an actor and a director and a playwright, and you just put the cap on it there. The work, the work became its fullness 
once it was performed by you. That is a magnificent compliment to come Blew from my mind. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I want to dig in a little bit more on 1776. I love the way that you were brought to the cast, but I want to know now what it felt like to revive a role, number one, and to revive it in a way that no one pre-Hamilton would expect. Being able to step into John Hancock's shoes in this body at this time and saying those words has been, I, I, I can't say eye-awakening. It has, has been an humbling experience. Just the entire undertaking of the writing of the Declaration, the compromises that were made in regards to slavery mm -hmm. and taking that whole passage out and what our country could have been had that passage remained in that declaration. And the and just to know what those founding fathers, all old, I can't call them old because they weren't all old, but all white men in this room talking about equality and inclusion and, and, and wanting freedom for themselves, but keeping people enslaved in this country. Now, in my research of John Hancock, he, uh, he was one of the richest people in that area because of his inheritance. His uncle passed and left him this vast fortune. And his father had passed and he lived with his uncle and aunt. And then the uncle passed and, and Harvard grad at 17. He from what I understand, and if I'm wrong, I, I, I need to be corrected, but I, the research that I've done, he never bought or sold anybody. He did inherit slaves, but he never bought or sold slaves. I know a lot of the New Englanders, along with John Adams, and not a New Englander, but Ben Franklin, you know, they were against slavery, owning and, and selling slaves. And that was something else. In Trials of Sam Houston, I played John Quincy Adams forgot that too. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so yeah, we I, I, I played not only the daughter of Jeff Hamilton, then we switched time and flipped time. And I played John Quincy Adams, who said that they he wanted, there should be outlawed to sell or own a person. Yeah. And so he stood up to his daddy's <laughs> creed. But yeah, it's, it's the words coming out of our mouths as females, non-binary and trans people. And these words that were written originally for white males. It has been, it's been a gift. It's been moving because people are being moved when once those words are coming out of our mouths. They, it lands on them differently. We had the great experience of having Elizabeth Warren come and see our show. And she came backstage afterwards and she said, you all are making people feel, and that's what we need in this country. We need people to feel this and own this. And, and that's what's going to change people if, once they feel it. I love it that she said that because a lot of mm -hmm. times we always try to make our politics and intellectual activity. But the truth is you have to get people in here. Yeah. And until you Because that's what makes the difference. I mean, yeah. Yeah. If you don't if you don't get inside that heart and soul, there is no change. Mm -hmm. because that's where the change has to come from. So everybody should try to figure out a way to come and see 1776 on Broadway. 
Well, we will be close because after Broadway, we closed early January. We do a 16 city tour. And this time next year, I believe the end of July, beginning of August, I'm not sure of the exact dates, but go on the Tut's website, Theater Under the Stars in Houston. We will be in Houston next summer. Ah, okay. So I'm putting that on the list right now. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds like... We will be in Houston. And that's close enough. Just get on the on the bus. What's the little quick bus to get you down there? Oh, hmm. I can't remember the name. That blue bus. Mega bus. The mega Mega bus. bus. Jump on the mega bus and head down to Houston Theater Under the Stars. We like that, Liz. That's great. All right. So I want to ask you, because you've done so much, can you tell me your favorite role so far? <laughs> I, oh, I know, I know it's a tough question, but or 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 one or two that just stand out for you, not necessarily because of the role, but maybe more the experience that you had while you were portraying the character. Back in 1995, I played Bessie Smith over at Jubilee Theater, Rudy Eastman put that show in the season and allowed me to play that Bessie Smith 16 blues songs. And it's something about that character. It just, at at the time in my life, I just synced up. Another time that that happened was Carolina Change. I had just finished, I mean, I had just finished. They had extended my shooting time on Welcome Home, Roscoe Jenkins. I had missed three weeks of rehearsal. I, I was in Louisiana filming that movie and I drove back in I rapped on a Thursday. I drove into Dallas and drove straight to Theater 3. Watched rehearsal. I, I'm going to tell you, in seven days, I watched rehearsal that night and wrote down my blocking. I rehearsed with Terry Dobson during the daytime on my music. I would do that every day. And then at night, and so I, I watched the blocking for two days. The third day, I was up on my feet moving around. Now I'm the title character of the show. Anybody who was in it, Yolanda Williams can tell you about this. Shimberly Carter can tell you about this. They were in the show with me. They know. Yeah. Seven days. That next Thursday was our first preview, and I went on. I didn't have a script in my hand. <sighs> I sang the I, 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 girl. So Caroline, the next one that that was crazy for me, and I couldn't quite wrap my brain around it. I couldn't wrap my brain around it at first was playing Lena Yunker in Raising in the Sun. Huh. And I was like, because I wasn't even 50 yet. I wasn't even, I was 49. Yeah. And I, I, I and, and they were like, well, you're going to play Lena Yunker. I was like, I'm going to play Lena. I'm going to be mama. And as time went on, I started thinking about it. I was like, girl, you are mama. My child was the same age that Walter Lee would have been. Oh, okay. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, you are mama. You know, and, and especially because women were having babies earlier then. True. So I would have had a kid at 16, 17, 18 years old. Mm-hmm. So I would have been 20 years older than my kid. And that, that would have, you, I was like, oh, you are mom. <laughs> it's a wonderful role, but you do. It's one of those shows that it's like, is this is this role? Is this show? Are these characters still relevant today? And I've asked myself that every time I've seen the show. Oh, yeah. Um, and and every time I go in expecting it not to be the case, 
but somebody's in the right it spot. It speaks to that, right yeah, now. It does. It truly the does. The brilliance of Lorraine Hansberry. The brilliance. And and let me say, I saw, of course, I saw Caroline of Change or Change at Theater Three, and I had no idea that you went in after a week of rehearsal. Seven days. I cannot believe that because the show was absolutely wonderful. So our theme for this season of our podcast is reinvention, and theaters are starting to return to live in person productions. Thank. God, because I went to see one last night. So wonderful. Okay. Packed house. Yeah, as a matter of fact. I've, I've heard about the show from another friend of mine, and I hate that I'm not going to get to see it. It's on the standby list yeah, if you can tonight can. and tomorrow. Yeah, because there's a matinee tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. I believe All so. Right. Thank you. Yes. So when when you think about uh, about reinvention, what are some of the things you'd like to see the theaters that you work with do to to come back to come back strong? post-COVID. Just think outside the box. Mm -hmm. Maybe get out into the community. Take the theater to them. Find some spaces that aren't utilized and take, take you know, think outside the box. Yeah. We, we want to include people. And, 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 and you know, I, I was so grateful I got to see Little Shop when Theater 3 did it outside. And, you know, sometimes you, you just need to think outside the box. And and don't don't keep yourself locked in. Yes, you do have a subscriber base, and but think of all the new subscribers you might get if you think outside the box. Absolutely, and create those new people and new voices. Yeah. Yes, we do need to pay homage to some classics, but there's some new, exciting, upcoming people on the horizon. I I got to do uh, during the pandemic when we were all on lockdown. I got to do a couple of virtual workshops of some new pieces from some up and coming playwrights that were quite exciting. And I'm so grateful I got to hear their work, be a part of their work. And yeah, I think we just need to start thinking outside the box. Well, it's it's the only way to reinvent. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm with you 100%. So Liz, first of all, thank you for all this time you've given us today. My final question for you is, who is a woman in theater who inspires you and why? Off the top of my head, Felicia Rashad. And I'll tell you one reason. I got to do a one-week workshop with her as a master teacher. And it was for, just what we talk about, out of the box. It was against type. That was our whole workshop. I, I, I was, and I, I still pinch myself at these opportunities. I, I'm a Lunt Fontaine fellow. That is a fellowship that is bestowed on theater actors across the nation. You have to be nominated and voted on. And there's several different levels of those uh, voting uh, categories that you go through in order to be accepted. And the Lundfontein organization is in Wisconsin. And each year they choose a handful of actors who have been doing this thing 20 years or longer. Mm. And you come and you do this weekland, they lay out the red carpet, and there's a master teacher that's involved. And uh, Sally Bale and Shambly Ferguson, their master teacher was Olympia Dukakis. And she came and did a master class with us at the theater center. Oh my God. For a week. So we got to sit in the room with her and go over the Greeks for a whole week. Oh. With, and she was just wonderful and a wealth of information and open and beautiful and all the things you think. But my week was with Felicia Rashad. Wow. And here's this Texas lady, and she found out I was from Texas, and 
I don't know how it happened, Catherine, but there would be so many instances during this week. And I didn't want to overwhelm and be sitting at her feet and be just, but even though I felt like that, I didn't want to be that girl. But inevitably, I would find myself sitting one-on-one with her, mm. having conversations. And because she knows Akeem, she knows Oba, she knows people, Billy Jones, he, who did Raising in the Sun with her. Mm-hmm. And we would find ourselves in these different conversations and talking all the time. And I, well, some mornings we'd get up and get ready. And I was like, girl, I'm about to fall out this chair. She said, get your Texas self away from me. She said, I'm about to pass out too. <laughs> and we, So it was against type. And she worked with me. She gave me monologues. I took two monologues that I thought were against my type. I took Virginia Woolf and I took Blanche Dubois. She said, why do you think they're against your type? Oh, interesting. And we had just finished doing Medea here. And I was I, I was the nurse in Medea. She, she said, I thought you were Medea. I said, no, that was Sally Vale. That wasn't me. She picked some things for me that were against type. One, which was Joan of Arc. And the other one was Mary Stewart. Oh. And I got through, I got through doing, I, I think it might've been Mary Stewart. Oh, I got through, she worked with me one-on-one. She worked with all of us, the great actors from across this nation, regional actors. And she, she worked with me on my monologue and I got through and that woman stood up. She said, I'm honored to be in your presence. Oh, Catherine. That's incredible. Oh, my gosh. I don't have any words. Liz, you know I always have words. <laughs> what a I ain't what had a no moment. words. I don't have no words to this day. <laughs> yeah. And I looked at her like, are you serious? And she said, yeah. Wow. But watching her work her jelly, her navigate, her artistry through theater. I didn't realize she was a munchkin in the whiz when it started. <laughs> I didn't either. Oh when my Andre goodness. DeShields. Oh my gosh. She was a munchkin in the whiz. I didn't realize she was next in line for Dina in Dream Girls. And she left that role because they kept overlooking her for somebody else. The second in line, they brought her on. And finally she said, listen, I'm a first, I'm I'm a, a leading lady and I'm going to step out now. <laughs> and that's when she, they, they, somebody was doing a little thing called the Cosby Show. Oh, that- They needed an uh, actress that was fluent in Spanish. Oh my goodness. And she stepped into that role and the rest, as they say, and became America's mother. Yeah, she did. <laughs> yeah. But from Houston, Texas, yep, baby. Yep. 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 That, those... She and her sister. So that is my most admired, I believe, because I've watched her and she talked about how she navigated her child going to rehearsals and having tried to get a babysitter or taking the baby. Because at that point, they did have a someone to watch their kids when they were doing The Wiz or I think it was Dream Girl, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. I've watched this lady with class, with elegance, and I've watched her navigate TV, film, theater, all of it with just the same amount of grace and elegance and professionalism and that, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, she is so well known for that role uh, as in in the Cosby show as Claire Huxtable. So well known for that role as Claire Huxtable that it's very nice to have the reminder 
that not only has she done that's where she she started in theater right, baby. all of the other work <laughs> that she's done and that she gives back you know that she gives back and it's really nice to to know that about her i want to get away from me with your texas self <laughs> <laughs> i am keeping that one okay i am truly but that i'm honored to be in your presence i'll never get that as long as i can. oh my gosh no that 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 is the compliment to take with you for the rest oh, of no. your life absolutely it has been a joy, Liz, going down memory lane with you and the tears and the laughter. It has been so much fun. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you, Echo Theater. It's very important that you all support what this magnificent theater organization is doing in our community. Support live theater. If you can't go, sponsor somebody else that hadn't had a chance to get there and get them to the theater. We've got to keep it alive. Y'all, during a pandemic, when we were all locked in our homes, I know you were watching TV and film and, 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 and binge watching different things. There were actors, writers, directors, creatives, artists that made that content that you were looking at. Go support live theater in this community. That's all I got to say. Well, and I think that that is a great way to end the podcast. So do you, <laughs> where, where can our listeners go to find out more about you and your projects that are coming up? Right now, I'm getting my website revamped. So if they visit me on all social media platforms on Facebook, you can find me at the Down Home Diva. That's my professional page on Facebook. Of course, you can just Google Liz Michael on Instagram. I am Ms. Liz, M-I-Z underscore L-Y-Z-Z. And on Twitter, I'm at Ms. Liz, M-I-Z-L-Y-Z-Z. Not a lot on YouTube, but you can check out my YouTube channel if you would subscribe. And it's Ms. Liz there as well, M-I-Z-L-Y-Z-Z. Of course, while I'm in town, I will be at the Balcony Club hosting on Monday nights. I've been doing that for eight years. The Entertainer Showcase with a live band, no cover charge, 1825 Abrams Road. The artistry is live, the music is hot, and the mic is open. We do that on Monday nights. And the evening is fabulous for people who want to hear good <laughs> music performed by yes. great local musicians. Absolutely. Here, here. Thanks so much, Liz. It has been a pleasure and a joy. I'm so glad to see you. Thank you for having me. Thank you all so much for joining us for this episode of Echo Offstage Theater Women Speak. Be sure to follow Echo Theater Dallas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to submit your own questions for our guests and for exciting news and updates on upcoming podcasts, readings, and productions. Please be sure to subscribe because next week I will be talking to Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Lynn Nottage. You've been listening to Echo Offstage, Theater Women Speak, a production of Echo Theater in Dallas, Texas, a nonprofit theater dedicated to solely producing works by women plus playwrights. I'm your host, Katherine Whiteman. Our podcast manager and producer is Eric Berg. Our audio engineer and editor is Jonathan Villalobos. Graphics and social media by Lauren Floyd. Our theme music is by Lynn Barnett with Brent Nance. Executive produced by Kateri Kale. Managing Artistic Director at Echo Theater. Find out more about Echo and our mission to champion the diverse voices of women plus artists at echotheater.org. And follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Echo Theater Dallas. Find these links and more info about today's guest in the show notes. Going dark. Thank you, Dark. Thank you, Dark.
No wonder you get all the roles you do. You are so oh, directable. <laughs> I love you, Liz. All right. I love you back. <laughs> it ain't easy being cheesy. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs>